Our first reading is from Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 2. But when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the faith, but through faith in Jesus, by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. The word of the Lord. Our second reading is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked him. But Jesus called to him, saying, let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. The word of the Lord. We are in week two or three of our series called Gospel in Life, where we're looking at the core values of Christ Church Vienna through the lens of a book that we've used for a number of years as a pre-membership study. Today we are on the topic of the heart, which is really what it's like to be a gospel-driven church and gospel-driven people. So here's the basic theme of it if you look at our vision and values. We want to be a gospel-driven church. That means that we are motivated, driven, founded on the grace-filled news of Jesus Christ. And we want to allow the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ crucified and risen for us to define our identity and our worldview. That all of us would understand ourselves and the world around us from the perspective of Christ crucified for us. We've said it before, but if you haven't heard it, here's the basic Christian gospel good news. Though we are so sinful that we deserve death and we cannot save ourselves, God loves us so much that he died for our sins 
and he freely offers us salvation by grace in Jesus Christ. My hope for this church is that we would be the sort of people who are marked by that, that that gospel of grace would drive us to be more humble, more generous, and more assured of God's love for us so that we can be loving to one another and the world outside. Now the problem is, it's the basic human problem, and we're gonna hit on part of it this week and part of it next week. The problem that we have as humans is that we have a savior and a Lord problem. The basic gospel is Jesus is savior and Lord, and our basic answer is we want to be our own savior and Lord. We try to measure up to find our identity, our worth, our hope in something other than Christ. We try to be our own savior day in and day out. And we're independent. We want to do our own thing, make up our own rules, decide what's right and wrong for us. And we turn to our own things to give us validation, to make us feel like we're okay. Not only is that being our own savior, it's also being our own Lord. The problem with being a gospel-driven church and gospel-driven people is that we do not really want to believe that we are in need of a savior and we don't really want to accept the grace that Jesus offers us. And that's because we, by nature and our culture in particular, and in fact every culture and every religion ever, is performance-based. So you have to start performing from an early age, right? Any of you who are in school, and a few of you are in school right now, any of you who are in school know what does it take to get an A on a test? It takes one of two things. Either you happen to be really smart and good at that subject, and you're the kind of kid who walks in and gets 100 on everything in that class, or you work really hard. You study, you memorize, you go over problems again and again until you've mastered it and you get the 100, you get the A. But whether it's because you're really smart naturally or you've worked really hard, in the end, it's how you performed on the test that determines your grade. You do not get the 100 if you miss half the problems. You don't just show up and say, I'm a pretty great guy. Shouldn't I get an A? Some of you might try that. Some teachers it'll work on, most it won't. It's the same out of school as it is in school, actually. You will be measured constantly based on your performance. It's how sports work, right? The person who's on the field probably deserves to be there. A few weeks back, you heard when Sam Pasco was preaching that back when I was at Madison, I was a star quarterback here. Why is there laughter? <laughs> now, it's true that I was at Madison, and I was a star quarterback, but they didn't align. I was a star quarterback when I was six in my backyard. <laughs> at Madison, I was the fourth-string quarterback as a junior. Fourth-string quarterback does not mean you come in and play in the fourth quarter. It means there are three people who are better than you. Now, I was actually a really good quarterback, but I was too slow, too small, too weak-armed, and I got really scared when the defense came in. <laughs> but besides that, I was pretty below average. And when I'm being honest and looking back on it, I know that the guys who are ahead of me probably deserve to be there. They performed better in practice. They performed better in the game. It's not just school or sports. You know any of you in the work world. You are constantly measured on your performance. 
A friend of mine who's in sales told me years ago about the constant pressure to meet the next quarter sales quota. How you're constantly tethered to your clients and you cannot get away from the pressure, the demand to perform, to perform, to perform. You know that you get paid because you've worked. You merit that pay. It's not like the company or the boss is like, I just like to throw money around. You've done something to get something. And at the end of the year, you'll probably have a performance evaluation where you and your job and your salary and all these other things will be evaluated on the basis of your performance, what you do. Performance-based evaluation is actually necessary in school, in sports, in work. It's very American, right? We say we're a merit-based culture, but it's also in our nature as human beings. Even if you're not part of a merit-based culture, we are constantly judging ourselves on the basis of how we're doing according to some standard or how we're comparing to others. We constantly feel the need to perform, to do, to merit, to earn our worth, our standing, our place. And that may be necessary in school, in sports, at work, but it is not the gospel. It is not the Christian gospel. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus gives us a parable where he describes the difference between two ways of approaching God. In Luke 18, verse 10, he starts, the, the parable starts off with Jesus saying, two men went up to the temple to pray. Now, uh, some commentators suggest that this is probably one of two points in the day. In the ancient Jewish world, everything was centered on the temple in Jerusalem where sacrifices were made by priests. These religious rituals involved the sacrifice of a lamb at nine o'clock in the morning and at three in the afternoon, the morning sacrifice and the afternoon sacrifice. That was the time when the people in Jerusalem would gather together that day to wait for this whole ritual process to take place, to engage in the songs and the prayers. And then after the lamb was sacrificed, atoning for the sins of the people of Israel, after that, people were free to go in and around parts of the temple, not into the center part, in and around the temple to pray to God on their own. So two men, a Pharisee and a tax collector, go up to the temple, probably at one of these sacrificial times in order to pray. The, tax the, the Pharisee, who is a religious leader, he's a priest, he's a guy like me, if you would, he starts praying and he says in verse 11 and 12, thank you, God, that I am not like other men. Thank you that I am not a liar, an adulterer. I'm not even like this tax collector over there. I don't sin like them. I'm not filled with vices. Thank you, God, that I'm not like them. In fact, you know what I do, Lord. Twice a week I fast. I don't eat in honor of you. And I tithe, I give a tenth of everything I have, not just my money, but even down to the, the uh, spices in my spice rack. I give a tenth of everything to you, Lord. Now, the Pharisee, and you know this if you've looked at the Gospels, were the most religious people in the society. We tend to not love religious Pharisee-type people, but there's an equivalent for them to us today. Today, it would be the really nice guy. We're a culture that doesn't value religious people, but we value nice people, right? Back then, you wanted to have a Pharisee as your next door neighbor. You wanted your daughter to grow up to marry a Pharisee. They were the highest of society in the community. They were respected, they were moral, they were upright, they sought God. 
They were the good people. But like any good people, whether it's in our culture or then, their whole life was built on a religious performance-based approach. And if you approach God from a religious perspective, what you will often do is take a principle of God, like everything belongs to God, everything comes from God, and you'll make rules that God doesn't even make. You're supposed to give back to God. Okay, let's give one-tenth of everything to God. And you decide every detail of what one-tenth is, one-tenth of your shoestrings, one-tenth of your hair that's cut. You come up with all sorts of crazy extra rules in order to make sure that you're on the right side of the boundary markers. And that's what the religious people did in that day and age. They made up extra rules, like fasting twice a week instead of once a week, like tithing every little detail instead of just offering your stuff to God. And when you approach God from a religious perspective, you will base your standing in the community before God in your own eyes on the basis of your performance. And you're always going to be comparing yourself to other people. How do I look compared to others? As long as I'm better than the liars, the adulterers, and the tax collectors, I'm good. But the tax collector approaches God wholly differently. In verse 13, we read, he stood far off. He wouldn't go where the others would go. He didn't feel worthy to approach closer to the temple. He won't lift up his eyes to heaven. He's beating his chest, which as one commentator said was a shameful thing for a man to do in that culture. It was typical of women in that culture who were expressing emotion over a death. He doesn't care how he's going to look in other people's eyes. He's standing on his own and beating his chest and won't look up because he knows he has nothing to offer God. He is humbled and hopeless and he knows that he is a sinner and so he falls on the mercy of God. Have mercy on me. I'm a sinner, God. And Jesus says, this man the tax collector who was known as one of the worst people in society, the equivalent of like a drug dealer today. This man went away justified. That means right with God. This man went away right with God, not the religious guy. The parable is set up at the beginning as Luke gives a prologue and he says, Jesus told this parable about those who trust themselves for their righteousness, their standing before God, and therefore treat others with contempt. Jesus is trying to say this, my kingdom, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, what I have come to do is for the humble, for the needy, and those willing to be dependent. It is not for the self-reliant. And the challenge is the difference between religion and irreligion and the gospel. In traditional or religious cultures, whether that is uh, kind of religious communities like this or traditional cultures in parts of the world where they do things uh, societally in a normal traditional sort of way moral goodness and religious performance de determine your standing every religion in the world has a set of commandments offerings you must make fast and pray during this season you don't eat during daylight say this many prayers after you've sinned there's codes you're supposed to follow in any religious system. Traditional societies are not very different, even if they don't buy into religion. Traditional societies say you've got to honor your family. 
There are cultural expectations about what you're supposed to do. There's duty you must follow. Whether it's religion or just traditional culture, it approaches ourselves and our standing in this world on the basis of how we are doing by all of these measures. Now, you might think that modern American secularism, which is where our country is trending, the kind of atheistic, agnostic, I'm not sure, not really been in church, that that, that would be very different from a religious or traditional approach. And in some ways it is. It's different in the sense that in uh, the modern American secular sort of way, we say, I am not going to follow all the external rules of your traditions or your religion. I break off of those. I will set my own standards. But even in setting our own standards, whether it's the ones that we make up on our own or it's what everyone in our culture agrees with, what we are likely doing is turning to something else and another set of rules to save us. You will turn to your career or your grades or a nice family or being liked by people and you will seek your validation and your meaning on the basis of how you're doing in whatever area you find to be most important to you. Whether you are religious or you are irreligious, you are likely living as your own Savior and Lord. Both religious and secular people seek to justify themselves, to find their purpose and their worth on the basis of what they're doing. Both religious and secular people are always comparing themselves. If, if you're doing poorly according to your standards, whatever those standards are, like if career is your, your most important way of finding your identity and you're falling short in your career, you're going to feel awful about yourself. If you're nailing it, if you're succeeding in your career, you're going to feel superior to those who are not. If the Ten Commandments and, ha- and avoiding vices is your goal, if you're struggling with a particular sin, you're going to feel awful, low, horrible. And if you're doing all right, kind of nailing the Ten Commandments, you're going to look at all the people out there that are messed up and feel superior and smug towards them. Whether you're religious or secular, our tendency is to base our standing on our performance, how we are doing. And that is not the gospel. Paul makes it clear in Galatians 2.16, a person is not justified, not made right with God, not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. We are not made right by our performance, by our goodness, our religiousness, or anything we've achieved in life. We are only made right because of the death of Jesus Christ on the cross for us. And this overturns our common assumptions about Christianity or how you get in. It's not the religious are in and the secular are out. It's not the good are in and the bad are out. It's the humble are in and the proud who are out. The key is to not trust your own record to justify yourself, but to fall on the mercy of God and Christ's death as the only way to make us right. In Galatians 2, this comes to a head as Peter is in Antioch, according to Galatians 2, 
and was eating with Gentiles and then stopped eating with Gentiles. It's a pretty confusing thing, but here's the basic background of it. In the book of Acts, as the Christianity is spreading, it starts as a Jewish religion. Jewish people believing in Jesus as the Jewish Savior. But Peter, a faithful Jew, has a vision in Acts 10 that God has opened the gospel to the Gentiles. And one of the markers of Jewishness was circumcision and another was dietary laws, things you couldn't eat, kosher food, right? So Peter held to that. He was circumcised, he ate kosher food, and he has this vision about eating non-kosher food. The very next day, he goes off to see a guy named Cornelius. Cornelius was a centurion, meaning he was a Roman officer. And he goes into his house and eats with him, something that was taboo for a Jewish person. Because he understood the gospel of Jesus Christ was not just for Jews, but for Gentiles, for everyone in the entire world, because it was not based on our performance, but on Christ's. Years later, Paul sees Peter in Antioch. Peter used to eat with the Gentiles, but all of a sudden some Jewish believers arrived. And when they arrived in town, Peter stopped eating with the Gentiles. He didn't want to eat with those, those non-kosher people. And Paul recognizes the racism and hypocrisy in Peter pulling away from Gentiles. He confronts Peter's racism and hypocrisy, not eating with Gentiles. Now, what he does not say, what Peter does not, but what Paul does not say to Peter is, hey, stop being racist. That's horrible. You know it's wrong. Come on, dude. Like, be enlightened. Wake up. You got to eat with Gentiles. It's what everyone's doing now. He could have tried to create a new set of laws, kind of yelling at him, if you would. And maybe Peter, for a little bit, would have, oh, yeah, you're right, I, sh I shouldn't be racist. But instead, we see in verse 14, Paul's argument is that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. It's not don't be racist, it's live in line with the gospel and everything else will play itself out. In other words, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ crucified for us is not just how we get saved, make it to heaven, have forgiveness. It's how we are called to live. It's the basis of our daily life. It's how we are to approach ourselves and others. Failing to live in step with the gospel is at the root of so many of our issues. So why is it so hard for us, even as Christians, as believers, as people who show up at church, why is it so hard even for us to live in step with the gospel? Why? Because we are performance-driven people. The problem is first that we are self-justifiers. We are constantly turning to other sources to make ourselves feel okay and right. Being accepted, our career, how funny we are, our beauty. We are self-justifiers and we are performance-driven. And we don't, deep down in our heart, trust that Christ's death is enough. We think we have to add something to the gospel to make sure we're in. Author Jerry Bridges wrote, The Christian community is largely a performance-based culture today. We think we earn God's blessing or forfeit it by how well we live the Christian life. 
I've found people do one of two things. If they're thinking about becoming a Christian, do you know what they do? They try to become a better person before becoming a Christian. Because it's kind of the idea of like, my life's a little messed up right now, so I gotta straighten myself up, myself up before I come to the cross, you know? Once I'm straight a little bit, then I'll go to church. We either try to make ourselves look good before we approach God, or even if we believe we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, we act as if remaining in Christ depends on our performance and not his. This is why most of us try to look so good and spiritual and all together when we show up in a church service. Everyone comes in smiling together. Everything's to, you look good. Your makeup on, hair's combed. As if you didn't yell at your kids this morning. You know you did. Now, I'm not saying that you should show up here unshowered and in those gray sweatpants you like to wear. If you, you're having one of those days and that's all you can do to make it here, then, then you should be able to come. For the sake of the rest of us, don't let that be your standard, but if you're driven by the grace of the gospel, it doesn't matter whether you've got the three-piece suit on or the gray sweatpants and bedhead. God's looking at our heart, and our salvation is by grace. It's not our outward appearance or even our performance on a daily basis. Behind most of our issues as people is our failure to live in line with the gospel. How come, for instance, you might be so easily offended? How come you might go around always hurt always feeling like people are not appreciating you, not recognizing you for what you do at work or in the PTA or in your family. You're not getting the credit you deserve. Why do you feel like it's not fair? Like you always include them. How come they don't include you? It's because you're not living in line with the gospel. The gospel says you did nothing, so you deserve nothing. But God loves you and gives you everything. You can be secure in his love and not hurt by being overlooked because God does not overlook you. Why do we struggle to forgive somebody? Why do we hold grudges? Because deep down in we say, I'd never do that. We see their sin as different and worse than our own. We compare ourselves. We say, I'd never do something like that. We're failing to live in line with the gospel. Because the gospel says you and I are sinners. We are more sinful than we're willing to admit. The gospel also says we are more loved in Jesus Christ than we dare to imagine. You are more sinful than you're willing to admit more loved in Jesus Christ than you can dare to imagine. That should humble us so that no one is better or worse. Doesn't matter what they've done, I am not better. But I also know that I'm loved in Jesus Christ 
And his love assures me that even when I fail, he still loves me. When I'm melted by the depth of my sin and the even greater depth of his love, it breaks my need for revenge. It shakes the foundation of my bitterness and unforgiveness. What's at the root of the gospel heart? At the root of the gospel heart is the cry of the tax collector. The tax collector in verse 13 says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That word, be merciful, is not the normal word for mercy in the New Testament Greek. The normal word for, for be merciful is elios or elios. It's basically compassion and kindness. Be compassionate, be kind. He is not saying, God, have compassion on me, be kind to me. He's actually using a more technical word that's rarely used in the New Testament, which is the word for atonement. Blood shed to pay for the wrath that I deserve. When lambs were, sh were killed and the blood poured out for Israel atoning for their sin, it was one of these helascomize. Be merciful to me. Atone for me, God, is what he's saying. Now the strange thing is, according to the religious practices, that had already happened a few minutes earlier. It's either nine o'clock in the morning or three in the afternoon. He has just gone to the temple. The priest has taken a lamb. He has slaughtered the lamb, poured the blood out, sacrificed and offered it for the sins of all Israel. And the tax collector doesn't say, God, thank you that that lamb took care of my sin. He says, God, I need you to take care of my sin. I think he realized that he was sinful and did not deserve acceptance on his own record. He needed mercy, mercy he didn't deserve, which is basically the description of grace, to receive mercy you don't deserve. And he knew, somehow he knew, that all the religiousness, all the sacrifices, all the priests were not enough to atone for his sin. He needed God himself to atone for him. And that's the gospel, isn't it? The gospel is God in Jesus Christ mercifully made atonement for my sins. And the gospel is available for those who continually see themselves and God in that light. That I am a sinner in need of a savior and his name is Jesus Christ. Get this straight. God does not love you more because you're successful. You have all your junk together. You're morally a pretty good person. He does not love you more if you are better than the average guy. If you have any sense of superiority or pride or feeling better than anyone on the basis of your intelligence, your income, how good your kids are, how athletic you are, if you have any sense of superiority on the basis of anything, you are being your own savior. It's not Jesus. God does not love you more because of what you've done. Rather, 
God loves you no matter what you've done or even what's been done to you. God loves you no matter how you fail or fall short or have not measured up. The gospel is about a cross. That God so loved the world, that God so loved you that he gave his only son. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's love for you is based on him, not you. Can we be a church built on, motivated by, driven by the grace of the gospel where performance and appearance and comparison and self-justification are not our norm, but where instead humility and generosity and love and grace are. Let's pray. God, we lose sight of what you have offered us in Jesus Christ. This thing that happened 2,000 years ago on a cross feels like a religious act. But it was the world-transforming, universe-shaking, life-reorienting gift of your love for us. That though we are sinners, you died for us. By grace, you offer us your love and mercy and atonement. And so we can come to you because of you. Amen.